What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, we are talking with Professor Sarah Damaski. All right. So she is not only a sociologist, uh, she's a professor at Penn State, but she just wrote a book called The Tolls of Uncertainty. And it's about the unemployment issues in the United States. And this is a book where when I saw it, I was like, I need to read this. And like not getting too much into my personal story, but I've been unemployed many, many, many times. All right. As many of you know, I'm a recovering drug addict when I was, you know, drinking and using. I lost jobs more than you can even count. I was getting fired. I was getting let go. I was failing drug tests, all sorts of stuff. But even when I got sober, you know, there were jobs that I lost. And, you know, what I noticed was there were there were many times when it was, you know, uh, an issue with me, but there were also issues completely outside of my control. And that's what Sarah and I talk about. She's done a ton, a ton of research around this. And I loved this conversation because She's so passionate about this and that, you know, fuels her research and her work and writing an entire book about this. But something that was really eye-opening to me that we're gonna talk about in this episode with Sarah is the gender differences, right? Like this is something that I hadn't even thought of, things that, you know, are different between men and women when uh, losing a job, reasons why, how, you know, if you have an unemployed wife and husband at home, Things are different within the household and household responsibilities. And uh, Sarah dives into all that in her book. And we talk about that a little in this episode. But also we talk about just so many other things that I don't think we take uh, into consideration because especially during the pandemic, I live in Las Vegas. A lot of people, a lot of people, you know, I know work in the service industry and, you know, they lost their jobs because of the pandemic and places shut down here in Las Vegas. So we often don't think of reasons why people lose their jobs or you know, the struggles to get a job and all these things. And it's important that we think about this so we can have a little bit more empathy for people going through this. But, but this episode, Sarah and I even uh, talk about our relationships and a little relationship advice and how we divide up chores and everything like that, because that's actually something she discusses in her book. So this is a really fun, interesting conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. So make sure down in the description below, you follow Sarah over on Twitter and please, please, please grab a copy of her book, The Tolls of Uncertainty, and learn a little bit more about the unemployment issues that are going on in the United States. All right. But also while you're down in the description, Make sure you're following me on social media as well at the rewired soul over on Instagram and Twitter. Not only do I post whenever there's new episodes up, but I also talk about, you know, what books I'm currently reading, upcoming episodes, because sometimes these episodes come a week or two later. So you'll see like who I'm talking to and what's in the pipeline and all sorts of cool stuff. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah Damaski about her new book, The Tolls of Uncertainty. Hello, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I am amazing, and I'm so excited to talk about your book. So for those who don't 
know you. Can you give us a little bit of who you are, what you research, what you study, and what this book is about? Sure, absolutely. So I am an associate professor of sociology and labor and employment relations at Penn State. And I'm the author of The Tolls of Uncertainty. And um, I research uh, employment and unemployment. And I'm particularly interested in how people transition into and out of work and how um, that matters for their lives and how, how those transitions are shaped by people's gender and by their social class background and by their race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the tolls of uncertainty, like you brought up so many things that I wasn't even aware of or hadn't even thought of. And that's one of the reasons like we were just talking like that's one of the reasons why I read so much because I'm like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. So I need to get, you know, these different views and opinions and people who are studying and researching this stuff. So one of the main things in the book that uh, you talk about is the differences between men and women, the different experiences with being unemployed and everybody listening needs to go get the book, but what are some of the main ones that you feel that people aren't aware of that, you know, is different between men and women? Well, I think that, can I take a step back actually? Yeah. So one of the things that I was really interested in and one of the things that I think the pandemic has done very Mm -hmm. nicely for me, although it's been such a horrible thing is that it's made people aware that women lose jobs too and become Mm. unemployed too and I think that one of the things that I was seeing a lot of in the literature and in stories in the media when um especially with the great recession and being called a man session and everything uh, (laughs) um that that there is so much focus on unemployment being something that happens to men Mm -hmm. and while it's true that men were who first lost jobs during the great recession women actually lost a lot of the jobs once the recovery started to happen Mm. and they didn't get jobs back as quickly so it started looking out like the great recession was impacting men a lot more but Mm. women were just trailing behind men and they were losing jobs and becoming unemployed too and their stories just weren't being told Mm -hmm. so part of where the um interest in this book was what came from was I was thinking to myself well where are the women's stories in this Mm. we're looking only at what's happening to to the men and I want to know what's happening to the women too to understand if they're experiencing things the same yeah so so with with what you noticed about you know women losing jobs and you know the kind of recovery what what would you say is the the primary source of that or the cause like I'm always interested in like the root cause like what what are we missing what's at the very bottom layer of this like that's causing that of why they're losing jobs or why there's a difference why they're losing jobs because from what I'm understanding men were getting jobs and returning to work and meanwhile women were losing jobs like why After the recession so yeah. I think so one of the things is interesting I think is that they're losing jobs in in different industries mm. and so the industries that and the occupations that men were employed in during the great recession were hit harder first Mm. And then we didn't have extra income. (laughs) And so we stopped spending as much. And that's Mm -hmm. when the service industry started getting hit harder. And that's when school budgets started shrinking. And Mm -hmm. that's when all of these other 
occupations that women are employed in started to shrink too. And so mm. that's why women got hit second because the men got hit first when there was a retraction in manufacturing and mm-hmm. so in, in, you know, in the car industry, we saw all those closures oh, yeah. right away. And then women kind of trailed behind. And so, so one of the things that we're seeing in this recession was, and that was caused by the pandemic was that women were hit first because of where the closures happened, mm. right? That the closures happened in uh, schools right away, that they have, they happened in service sector, in restaurants, in places where Uh, women were more likely to be working than men. Mm. And so uh, kind of keeping an eye on what types of industries are being hit and um, who's more likely to work in them. Because one of the things that we know is that men and women actually work in really different jobs Mm -hmm. um, because we have um, a highly segregated labor market even today. so one of the things I say in the book is that um, it, even if w- women and men do the same job, they often don't get paid the same or have the same job title, right? So if you're a woman and a man and you both work in a hotel cleaning, one of you is a maid and one of you is a janitor. Mm. And one of you gets paid a lot better than the other, even though you're essentially doing the same task. Mm. Right. And so we that's how segregated our work is by gender. Yeah. Yeah. And and something something else that you you brought up in the book, and this is going to be a two a two parter question. So the first (laughs) part is kind of, you know, gender roles and like household responsibilities, because you know, uh, you know, women are often seen as, you know, the, the caregiver and, you know, cleaning and cooking and stuff like that. And something that you, you researched and talk about in the book is how men don't take up as much responsibility. So a guy, for example, loses his job, and maybe you can articulate this better than I do, but a guy like loses his job and now he has nothing but free time, but he's not upping the amount of housework he's doing or upping the amount of stuff, you know, with the kids and all that. So can you kind of talk about what what you found when it comes to the responsibilities and roles when men versus women are unemployed? Yeah, and I think that's it. I think you articulated it very well, Chris. Thank nice. you. And, um, and, and, and what I, I end up calling this the guilt gap because mm. women talked about how guilty they would feel, um, the, how guilty they would feel if their husband would come home and they weren't doing something. They had to be doing something to make up for their job loss. And they talked about taking on all of the household chores. You know, they had already been doing more than their spouses were before they lost a job. And mm-hmm. then once they lost their job, they were doing everything they you know they were cooking meals every night doing all the dishes all the laundry all the cleaning all the mm-hmm. child care work and the men were like well i lost my job and now i cook tuesday nights right yeah you know and and they were in dual earner households too and so they and they weren't doing all this extra labor and and the women and the women were so it's really uneven so the men had much more time to spend on their job search than the women did yeah i think i think you mentioned like one story where like a guy like you interviewed him and he said he like said he was the better cook but he only cooked like once a week or something like that and you're like this doesn't make sense you know what i mean and and that that kind of stuff is really interesting but but like you said so what we're not realizing too is is that that takes away from a woman's time to look for work. And let me let me ask you this: Do you 
do you think part of it is like this, uh, this kind of masculine identity of I need to be working, I need to have the job. So that's why you need to be, you know, you should be taking care of the house. Do you think some of that's just like how we assume each person's role in these types of just relationships? I do think that that's part of it, that we do associate um, men with breadwinning, with paid employment. And so their job searches were privileged. Uh, Leah Rao, um, who you might want to add to your book reading list, she has a great book called um, Crunch Time. She found something very similar where the men, the men's time was protected and the women's weren't, right? And, and they, and, um, and so it's very much what I find, right? That the men um, don't have to, uh, don't feel that they have to um, do anything around the house. And um, they feel like they have to do a little bit, right? They're saying, oh, I'm helping out more. I'm helping out. But it's really, the emphasis is on helping, right? They're not mm-hmm. taking over. Oh yeah, right, and um, and and it allows them to have much more time to search for work. And the other really interesting thing that I found um, when you think about the breadwinning role had to do with their health, Mm -hmm. because we typically think of breadwinning. as kind of being this package deal where you um, provide health insurance through your work, you provide mm. income, but the men, um, once they lost their jobs and they weren't, um, and their jobs weren't providing health insurance anymore, a lot of them then kind of relegated health insurance to caregiving. This is now, oh, taking care of health, that's women's work. That's not Mm. something I need to worry about. And so it allowed them to kind of focus on themselves still and not worry about their wives (laughs) or their kids' health insurance. Well, my wife figured out if my son was going to get on chip and I worried about myself and my wife's uninsured, but she'll be fine. Right. And I mean, and the women were kind of opposite. I've lost my job and my job was the one that had the health insurance. So now I have to figure out how to get my husband insured and get my Mm. kid insured. And I'm going to not get insurance for myself. So because I was the one whose job was lost. And so they really took very, they had very different responses to what they had to what the meaning of their job loss was Mm -hmm. and whose responsibility it was to care for people's health Mm. after after insurance was lost. Got it. So here, here's the second part of this kind of household thing. And Sarah, we've been talking for a few weeks, but we're just now talking in person. You seem very, very nice, but I need you to give me some tough love. Okay. <laughs> like me, give me Chris some tough love because like, I, I'm always worried that uh, like I have a million like psychologists and stuff who come on and everything. And I'm always worried about being stuck in a bubble and this confirmation bias and all sorts of stuff. But just a little bit about myself. And let me preface this by saying, I hate the whole like not all men thing, right? I just want to punch a not all man in the face. But anyways, so I I love to cook. 
I love to clean. I, my son and I, we cook. My lovely girlfriend gets to sit there and we'll whip up stuff and everything. I'm even getting him to like kind of cook on his own now because, you know, he'll be the next master chef with Gordon Ramsay and stuff like that. I like to do the dishes. I like to clean. Like uh, we were talking about how much I read. I, I listen to audiobooks, So I'm like, yeah, I'll do the dishes. I'm like scrubbing and doing this. So like I, I do a ton. I do our grocery shopping, all these things. And I think part of this is like, you know, relationship therapy type stuff that people might need to, you know, because I don't care. Like, I'm just like, I like doing these things. I think cooking's fun. I get to be creative. But anyways, anyways, so here's where the tough love comes in, right? Because I, I guess why I'm asking this, because I, I look at myself, all I have is my experience. I'm like, well, not me, right? My <laughs> girlfriend, when she hears like women complaining about their boyfriends or like, you need a man who will cook for you. And she's like, this dude cooks for me every night, you know? So I guess, you know, half of it is like, my brain's like, well, not all men. But the other part of me is like, what what can I do to encourage people or like, I don't know, like, is there something like, I, I don't know, because when I listen to these problems, I'm like, how do I make a change or help other people or get the word out? So, so yeah, feel free to like, be like, hey, Chris, well, that's just one instance out of a million or whatever. I can, I can take it. I promise you, Sarah. So lay it on me. So your uh, listeners can't see, but I'm kind of, um, uh, polishing a halo over Chris's head right now. Um, <laughs> very impressive. Um, so I, I think that one of the important things to think about is to have these honest and open dialogues with your partner about what the labor is mm-hmm. and to, um, to be making sure that you have all of the labor on the plate. Like what is all of the labor mm-hmm. that that is being done in the household and um, not just the tasks that we like because cooking is one of the tasks that is one of the easier ones to to, um, pick up. Mm -hmm. And um, because it is one one of the ones that we know um, that men are most likely to pick up. Um, And and so (laughs) what about those toilets? (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I was just thinking too, like, like I, I, I neglected to mention like what she does, right? Like we have two amazing cats. She does the cat stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> like feeding and the litter boxes and all that. So it's a division of responsibilities for sure. Yeah. And so, and so what I would say is that one is that, is that we can have these honest conversations about like, all right, so you're doing a task that you're good at and you enjoy and that I maybe don't like as well. And I'm glad that you're taking on mm-hmm. and I'm doing a task that I'm good at and I enjoy and that you, y- you don't enjoy as well, right? Mm-hmm. And then what do we do about some of the t- tasks that neither of us are as, as crazy about? Because everybody's got a toilet and I don't think anybody really likes cleaning them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and so, and this and this is what I say in my, in my class with my undergrads. Like these are the types of conversations we should have with partners before we, we partner with them or once mm. we've partnered with them <laughs> because a lot of people don't end up taking a class with me before. <laughs> before they're partnered like how do we have how do we start to have these conversations and what types of labor do we have to think about right Allison Damager who's a a PhD candidate at Harvard has um, done this great work on the mental load so once Mm. you have kids who is thinking about some of the labor uh, figuring out what the kids um, gonna do for the summer thinking about how that kid's school schedule is going to look who's doing all of that mental labor right mm. and how do we make sure that we're both sharing that if that's appropriate in in our relationship you know like 
constantly checking in. And I would say the other thing that it sounds like you're doing that is really, oh, and I've got a Zoom that's telling me, do you want to update? I just no, updated. Not yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> so no, not, not right now. Um, so the other thing is that when you have kids like your son and you're modeling this behavior, that's one of the most important things, right? Is that we have new research out suggesting that, um, uh, like Kathleen McGinn's, uh, she's a researcher at Harvard, that that this kind of modeling behavior where kids see their parents mm -hmm. being equitable and sharing equitably leads to kids who grow up mm. to have these equitable divisions. And that's really important as well, right? And so it's both kind of continuing to have these conversations about what's fair and doing it and modeling that in front of kids who will then do that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I, I love like making content and stuff because I am a huge nerd who just loves to read and stuff. And I like relaying that to people, but I know I can't teach everybody or whatever, but I do have my son. And I think about that, you know, when we're cooking, we're cleaning or, you know, whatever, I'm like, okay, cool. He's going to make his partner very happy someday, you know? And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, at, at least if I feel like all hope is lost, I've instilled that in him. But I want to touch on something. Oh, go ahead. I was just to say, and I, as someone whose spouse is a very good cook, I will say it is an excellent thing to have a spouse who cooks nightly. I am very pleased. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some things too that my girlfriend cooks better than I do. So like on those nights, <laughs> I'm like, here, you handle this, you know, whatever. But um, you, you mentioned too, like, uh, you know, when we're uh, like when you teach your undergrads and stuff, like when we're getting like in a relationship and stuff, these types of things aren't conversations. And that's why, oh my God. Like when people like go out on like three or four dates and they fall in love and say, let's move in. I'm like, you don't know what their habits are. You don't know if they do anything around the house. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things and, and, it, and yeah, it's, it's conversations and all that. And I don't know if you've come across this study, but I, I believe they took, uh, you know, couples and, you know, they like separated them. They asked the wife, like, how much, how much of the housework do you do? And they're like 60 to 70%, right? Take the husband and say, how much of the housework do you do? And it's like 60 to 70%, which is impossible, you know? So there's this internalized idea that we're doing more than we are. And that's why I'm always like trying to check in and, you know, and I think, you know, because you don't like, what kind of relationship would that be? If you're like sitting there and like actually doing like the percentages and stuff, it's just having these, these kind of conversations. You know what? That's a great question. How do you, how do you split up the work? Cause you, you are a busy, busy woman and all that. So how do you have these conversations? So we try to check in with each other. I will say that I was, my husband and I um, met at the first, our first day of college. Although we like to point out that we didn't start dating till the end of our first year. So we took yeah. our time <laughs> to get to know each other. And um, uh, I, I wasn't a sociology major in college, but I did take a sociology uh, class mm. towards the end. And I read Arlie Hochschild's um, classic book. Um, and, and I, and I highlighted it and <laughs> it's called the second shift. It's about, um, men's and women's division of labor. Mm. And I tabbed it and I gave it to <laughs> my spouse. And you know that they're in, they're committed for the long haul when they're willing to read it and they decide yeah. to stay. <laughs> and so, um, so we, so we, we have conversations about it. We check in, we, um, 
we do, we cook together. He makes the mains, I make the sides. Mm -hmm. um, we swap who does the dishes every night. So no one feels stuck with them because neither of us love the dishes. Yeah. Um, there are some tasks each of us do. Most things we share um, and we, we, we try to be pretty 50-50 and we, we do, we check in uh, pretty regularly to see how we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, like when I when I look around, like you know, I'm I'm 36 years old, but like through my experience, it just seems like like communication is just what you need. Just like talk, like don't hide things, don't internalize grudges or you know whatever. Say, hey, I'm tired today. You know, can you do this today? If not, are you cool with me doing it tomorrow or or whatever? But people like they don't talk, and like why are you going to be in the same household with someone you can't? talk to but anyways we could do a whole episode on like relationships and <laughs> coach people but um so back to the unemployment uh you you early on in the book you you have a chapter called like uh the the path to job loss and i you know i i think that there's a lot of i don't i don't know another word for it like ignorance around what leads to job loss right mm -hmm. like uh you know when i when i see you know just the, the wealthy or whoever and calling people lazy and all this, you're like, oh, you lost a job. Like it's very victim blamey ish. And trust me, I've worked with people who deserve to get fired, but what do you, what do you think are some of the misconceptions? Like you, 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 you really get into the nuances of what can lead to a job loss, but what do you think a lot of people are unaware of, or, you know, what have you seen like regularly? That's kind of like not really highlighted when it comes to why people lose their jobs. Well, I think that one of the things that, that I, say in the book and that I'll start off with here is that the vast majority of Americans will experience at least one bout of unemployment in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I think <laughs> that most of us don't recognize that. And without understanding that, we think of it as something that happens as something as something that happens to somebody else, mm. right? not as something that happens to us. And so I think that as long as it's something that happens to someone else, it's easy to other that someone else, to think mm -hmm. of them as you just described as someone who lost their job because it was their fault somehow. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's the complete misperception of what happens when people lose jobs. Because one of the things that I try to make very clear in the book is that Firing people is, um, and downsizing or whatever kind of language you want to use, is an everyday practice in American business today. Mm -hmm. And it has become baked in to how American companies practice. Yeah. It's how they balance their... <laughs> <laughs> they, how they balance their books at the end of the year, right? So if profits aren't looking good, if one of the easiest ways to turn from red to black is to have fewer people on your payroll mm -hmm. because you have fewer expenses. People are some of the most expensive things companies have. And so one of the quickest ways to get out of the red is to lay off people. And mm -hmm. it is strategically long-term research suggests not always the best idea, but yeah. it is a very quick and easy way to, to practice employment relations. And since the 1980s, it has been come steadily part of what companies do. And so people lose jobs for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with them and everything to do with what's happening in the company right now. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. I, I, you know, I, I was tweeting your, the praises about your book, like, you know, as I was reading it, cause I was having so many flashbacks and, and what I, the, whenever I think of unemployment, I think of 2008 when my son was born, right. Everything, we were in a recession. I actually had the best job I ever had. I was working in uh, uh, car service at a dealership and, and every day we went in, people were getting laid off left and right because of all of the, you know, every, the, the chain reaction, people couldn't get approved for cars so they couldn't buy new ones. And that's how, you know what I mean? So people are just getting laid off left and right. And our service department where I worked, we were booming, right? But people were getting laid off just because of that. And meanwhile, the owner of the dealership had like, he has like four or five houses in the country and then like uh, a private jet and then uh, a house in Italy and all these other things, right? I'm like, man, if you sold one of those houses, you could probably pay somebody's salary for a year. But anyways, uh, the point I'm making is like, I, I really saw how this had nothing to do with the quality of work that anybody was doing. It was just, they wanted to make sure that they weren't in the red, right? <laughs> that they weren't, you know, losing money. And I think one of the things that we've let happen in the U.S. is that we've let um, this inequality between the people at the top and the people at the bottom grow so much, right? And there is the the taxes at the top have lowered, and and as they have lowered, it has meant that the more that you can, it has meant that there is a growing return to making even more, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and so there is, and and there and at the same time, the restrictions at, at letting people go ha have loosened, and and so there is less cost to letting people go, and then finding someone to replace them, mm -hmm. and so there's no real reason to sell your fourth home to keep your staff on yeah. because there's no longer this expectation that there once was that this contract between employee employees and employers mm -hmm. and that contract no longer binds people together and, and no longer binds and very much so doesn't bind employers to their employees mm -hmm. and so when um when things get tough, employers feel much more able to let employees go. And we, we see that in some of those chapters where um, people describe kind of, you know, and then things got tight and my employer decided to, to let me go. Or one of the examples in chapter three, a person asked for a raise. She hadn't gotten a raise in a number of, I, I call her Alana in the book, but she hadn't gotten a raise in a number of years, even though she'd been the um, best salesperson in, in, in at her work for, I don't know, 40 months in a row or something. Yeah. She was outstanding. And she went in kind of her boss said she'd think about it she went in expecting she was going to get the raise and instead her boss fired her in front of the entire staff kind of to set a lesson here's precedent don't ask for a raise if you ask for a raise you will be publicly fired yeah um, even if you're the best salesperson and, and I, I mean yeah it's it, it's it's nuts like uh last last year and I I dove just really into just this kind of like the, the whole myth around like, just like the, the way like, you know, our country set up like in a meritocracy and stuff like that. Like you, like you, what you just mentioned, just the gap between the people at the top and the employees, like we, you know, uh, as I started, you know, diving into these books and, and, you know, I, I started hearing more often, like 
if if you're if you're a serious person and you just look at it, do you think like if a CEO is making hundreds or thousands of times more than you, right? And you're working eight, 10, 12 hours a day, you think that they're working that much harder than you? And the, the reality is the higher you get towards the top, typically the less responsibility you have, the more free time, the more traveling you get to do, the more, you know what I mean? And there, trust me, there are CEOs who, who are workaholics, but I really want people to sit back and just kind of question that because, uh, you know, with this kind of individualist uh, country that we've set up, we, we tell people like, no, if you work harder, then you could do this. And it's like, but that's not necessarily true because you have people working less hard who are at the top who could make decisions that you would never be able to make. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I think, I think the unfortunate thing is that it's really hard for people who are not, who are that far away to see, mm. to see clearly to the, to what's going on at the top, right? That's not what their comparison is. They, I think it's more easy to see, um, so what I found is that they would look around and say, I don't want someone to think that because I'm unemployed, I'm taking from the system, right? And so that they have this very negative stereotype that I think is very racialized. It's due to these racist stereotypes about people who are on welfare mm -hmm. we can kind of blame Reagan for yeah. that. Um, and they would, and, and so instead of looking to the top, they're looking to the bottom to people who are closer to their situation also receiving funding from the government and they're trying to distinguish themselves from from people like that and to say i'm not like that i deserve the money that i'm receiving right and they're not um and they're not casting their eyes kind of upward in a critical way they're only mm -hmm. casting their eyes downward and and i th and, and i think in a way um to to set themselves as morally deserving of um of their um unemployment as others have argued yeah. as well and so i think to 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 convince them that they should be looking more critically upwards is is a hard <laughs> it, it, it is a is a hard piece of work because i i think that there's there's this need to hope that we can get somewhere else, right? And so how yeah. do we how do we convince them that the hope comes from saying up there isn't isn't where you can be and we need to fix what's up there in order for you, what where you can be to be better, yeah. right? That that requires many different steps. And I think it, I think it's a hard argument. It's a harder argument to make. And it, but I think it's one we need to make a more conservative effort to make because mm -hmm. I think people were very reluctant to say I need help or I need um I um the unemployment benefits that, that I'm receiving aren't enough there's a, a woman that I talked to um at the end of the book um I describe her and 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 I asked her what the government could do. And she kind of starts to say she could need more benefits and she could have her family was in poverty after her job loss. They were struggling. Mm -hmm. They were struggling very much. And then she was like, no, they shouldn't do anything. I don't actually want anything from them. I don't need any help. I'm doing fine. And I'm like, you 
are describing food scarcity. (laughs) You are describing like not being sure of how long the lights are going to stay on your home. This is not fine. This is in need of help. If anyone is in need of help, it is you. And (laughs) you can't articulate it because you don't want to be seen taking government funding. And I think we need to figure out how how to make people able to have that conversation where it's okay to, to need help. We, Sarah, we might need to do a part two because I just want to talk to you about this all day. But yeah, there, there's <laughs> there's there's so much because like you mentioned, like we've wrapped up morality with whether or not you have a job and how much money you make. So you've seen this less than, but you know, with, with the point of like t- teaching people or training people to like realize like, no, you need help and, and it's okay. It feels like, like when I just look at, you know, uh, just political polarization and uh, you know, the top versus the bottom. It's, it, it feels like the top can easily turn the people at the bottom against each other and saying, oh, this person's taking your job. Oh, you're paying for that person's food. You know, and then we're all just focused on each other while these people are on their yachts and in their private jets and in their mansions and having dinners that cost the amount of my rent and, you know, and so many things. And I'm just like, hey, hey, we need to quit looking at each other and look at them and we're not bad people. They, you know, our employers, are teaching us. I just I just recently had uh, Ron Purser on to talk about uh, the mindfulness movement and how employers are bringing in these happiness gurus or mindfulness gurus to say, hey, if you're stressed and if you're o- overworked, that's an internal problem. Here's how you can accept it. And it's like, how about I don't need to work 14 hours a day for minimum wage. You know what I mean? And- right. No, I, I think that that was such, I feel like during the pandemic, there was all of this stuff that was like coming out from different workplaces, all about kind of mindfulness or reclaiming <laughs> your stress. And it's like, people are stressed because there is no childcare. There is a pandemic. Everyone is trying to work through a pandemic with kids at home and while Zooming and yeah this is not you know thinking that it's just that people can't handle stress well is not the solution (laughs) yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's there's it's really difficult for me because i i'm a recovering addict and like i until i started just doing things and taking action i couldn't get better so i i have like that individualist kind of meritocratic idea but then at the same time i realized like you just mentioned like you know we're stressed because part of it is the system is screwed up. So there's like this balance between like, for example, if you're unemployed, yes, you need to look for work, right? You need to, you know, if you do have time, hone your skills, develop, you know, whatever, and, you know, put in that work, but also our system is very screwed up. So it's kind of like Mm -hmm. this balance. And I feel like a lot of times the conversation is either or, and it's like, no, it's both, you know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of, both these things, but um, I, I have structure to... and agency, classical sociology. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. That's all, your whole thing. And, and I want, I want you to you explain this before, before we have to end this, but one of the studies that blew my mind, and you mentioned this in the book is how poverty and stress leads to poor decision-making, mm. right? Like, I, I wish I could sit everybody down and do some kind of brainwashing video for them. So it just really got into their head. Can you kind of explain how being low on resources makes you make more bad decisions and it becomes this like cycle of just terribleness? 
Yes. So there are these um, psychologists who've written this book called Scarcity and, and in it, they um, d describe this research where they discover that um, your decision-making ability um, is finite. You can only make so many decisions in a day before you stop making good decisions. Mm -hmm. And the more decisions you make, the poorer your decision-making ability is. And uh, if you're living in poverty, you are facing kind of difficult decisions all the time and it stresses your ability to make good decisions. Mm -hmm. And I saw that in action with the particularly the single moms, but with a lot of the people that I met who were thrown into poverty um, by their by their job loss and unemployment. And um, the problem is, is that when you lose a job and you go on unemployment, you are in most states at best making half of what you used to make. And so if you were working in a low wage job, you are automatically in poverty now mm -hmm. because you're making half of minimum wage and it's not enough it's not enough to sustain your family and mm -hmm. so all of a sudden you're having to make a million and one difficult decisions about what to do do i pay this bill do i pay that bill do i um do i do i take the time to walk my kid to work even though it's several miles because i can't really afford the gas to drive them anymore and we don't um live somewhere that has busing and yada 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 you know so that all of these decisions add up and they make it really hard to then and make good decisions about job searching. And for some people, it becomes impossible to think about job searching because you're spending so much time figuring out how to keep the heat on, how to keep the lights on, how to, mm -hmm. how to keep food in the cupboard. Because if you um, go to this food pantry on Tuesday, then you can't use them again for a month because they don't allow you to go more than once a month. And so then you have to figure out if there's another food pantry in another town, if you're allowed to use that one, if you don't live in that town. Mm -hmm. And if you go to that food pantry, when you go to the unemployment center, <laughs> you know, so they're just making so many decisions, trying to strategize about how to get by that the, that their ability to think about how to find a job mm -hmm. is greatly diminished. Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, like Roy Baumeister's work, but he, you know, he did a lot of research around self control, and uh, you know, uh, he calls it ego depletion, right? When we're constantly making these decisions, then eventually we're just like, screw it, I'll eat the donut or you know whatever if I'm trying to diet. But you know, I, I, I see that because I used to have such a terrible problem with impulse control. But when I look back, like when I go to the gas station, and it's like, should I put? $4 in or $7 in, right? Because I might want a snack. You know what I mean? And when I wasn't driving and I had to ride the bus, it's like, where am I going to find the $5 for a 24 hour bus pass? How many people do I call? Who do I call? And how do I get that money before I miss the bus to get to this place? You know, whether it's the welfare office, the unemployment office or whatever, like it's a full-time job when you're doing these things. And we're not, and that's not even factoring kids and having to take care of them and bills. And the other day, my, uh, there's, uh, there's that docu-series on Netflix called Dirty Money. And my girlfriend and I, we watched this one about 
uh, these guys who were doing this uh, thing with payday loans, right? And that was something, and she, my girlfriend didn't know about it, but that's something that I used to have to do here in Las Vegas. I was going to payday loan places. It's like, okay, do I just pay the interest off on this? And they extend it. And now I'm even deeper in a hole. And, you know, and then you're robbing from Paul to pay Peter. There's so many jug things going on. And now, now I'm in this place where I just have some breathing room, you know? And I, I just, I, that's why I, I wanted you to explain that study because when I learned about it, I'm like, yeah, you know, because then all of a sudden I'm just at the store and I'm just like, screw it. I'm going to buy this hundred dollar thing. I deserve it. You know, because I can't think of anything else, you know? And, and, and yeah. I think that if you just can go to the gas station and fill up the tank and you don't have to think about whether you're filling up the tank or not, right? It's just something mm -hmm. that you're doing because you need gas. That's a very different, you know, it's a very different experience of job loss and unemployment. And that was the experience that a lot of the middle class unemployed felt. They weren't worrying about whether they were going to fill up their gas tank. It was just something, of course, they were doing, right? And so they, the conversations that they're having uh, were very different. And it wasn't that they weren't feeling insecure. Job loss and unemployment makes everyone who's lost their job feel insecure. But whether they're experiencing financial insecurity on a daily basis is very, very different, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's important for us to tease out those differences and understand who actually is ex who's experiencing that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, because what I what I'm thinking about too is, you know, one of the reasons I started making my YouTube content about addiction recovery and mental health is because I literally had nothing. And like, it's these little things that I'm super grateful for, like the fact that I can go to the gas station and just put my debit card in there and squeeze that pump until it's full. Like that is something that I wasn't able to do for a long time. I had to play that game where it's like, okay, uh, can I get a right to like $5, you know, and the fact that I could drive and that, you know, my I, I could set up bills on auto pay. So I, I, I like talking about these things and, you know, increasing this awareness. Like we've covered some great things about, you know, just different aspects of unemployment, you know, between genders and how it happens and everything. So I hope it increases awareness to create some more empathy. But if, if I have a few more minutes of your time, I want to mm -hmm. ask this, like, and this, you know, simplified like what are some solutions like does it start with policymakers if if people are listening to this podcast what can they do you know and there's different there's different people there's unemployed people there's people who want to help unemployed people like what are what are some of the solutions that we can start looking to to give us a little bit of hope sarah <laughs> well so i actually i think there is a little bit of hope chris i <laughs> so i'm Bring a sociologist and i study kind of sad things but i i do like to look for the hope <laughs> yeah. and um and one of the things that i think we saw last year in the cares act was that we saw a lot of hope in how generous the unemployment benefits were last year. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been a lot of kind of back and forth about the supplemental benefits um, and whether they're um, increasing people, um, keeping people out of work. But I'd like to pit, make a pitch for the fact that we were more generous with people last year. And, and the research suggests two things. One, that the people who got those benefits who are unemployed experience much less material hardship than the people who didn't. Mm -hmm. So first off, it suggests that they did exactly what 
FDR and Francis Perkins originally intended unemployment benefits to do to keep people from experiencing that material hardship that can mm -hmm. happen when they're unemployed. And that's a really important thing that I think we don't hold on to enough that we want to hold on to more, that we want to hold on to this idea that unemployment benefits is our insurance against this hard time that does happen to most people mm -hmm. and that we want it to prevent them from experiencing that material hardship and that when we are generous with them, it does that. So, so real quick, sorry to interrupt, like I just keep thinking like, like, and you know, maybe you know more about this than I do, but like all I can think about, like, especially because we we're just talking about the, the the studies on like scarcity and decision making and stuff. Like, does UBI fix this? Like, is that like something, or is that like not feasible? Or well, I think UBI could fix this in a different way, but I think of what what we actually could do is fix the unemployment insurance program. There is a proposal oh. out there um, that's um, been put together by some of the. Um, really great um, uh, minds who are thinking about unemployment all the time. It's been put together by six um, think tanks and nonprofit organizations. Uh, they released it in June they're, that they're um, suggesting that we federalize the unemployment insurance program. Currently, we it's a federal state partnership and we let lots of states do whatever they want and what what many of them want seems to be to not <laughs> support the unemployed yeah. and, and and it's really under, underfunded right now so someone like me someone who's a professor someone who's got a middle class job probably pays all of their federal uh, unemployment insurance in their first um paycheck tax in the year, yeah. right? We, we pay very little um, compared to someone who is, uh, in percentage-wise, compared yeah. to someone who um, has a low-wage job. But we get a lot more than they do um, yeah. because of our income, right? And, uh, and I probably need it a lot less because I'm more likely to have money saved and much less likely to be living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so what they're proposing is to expand it, have more federal dollars go in, have, have um, take a little bit more out of people's paychecks um, at the federal level so that we have, have a bigger federal tax base for mm -hmm. it. And then um, when someone who is like Tracy, one of the women we meet in the book, who is a single mom who works a low wage job. And when she loses her job, we were to replace it at 80% of her wages. So mm -hmm. no, not 50%, not quite a hundred percent, but much closer to where she was. So she'd be much less likely to be in, as destitute as she was when I described it, right? And so, and so, and then the other thing that this would would cover, and this would cover people who I don't meet in the book, which is a lot of the people who lose their jobs actually don't qualify for unemployment insurance mm -hmm. because they haven't been in the job long enough because of the way that they, the type of the job that they hold, mm -hmm. they don't qualify. And so expand the umbrella so more workers get brought back in because right now there are too many loopholes and too many people are not qualifying for unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
so I think that that that's what this kind of pro, um, program would would do, and that's and I think that's what we need. And we have a great proposal on the table, and I think that we just need to keep our eye on on thinking about un, unemployment. I think that what happens is that. Uh, a recession comes along, like the great recession comes along or this recession comes mm -hmm. along with the pandemic and we're so eager to get past it, right? I mean, because who, yeah. <laughs> who wants to be in the middle of a recession forever and who wants to be talking about unemployment forever? These are dreary topics. But the problem is, and as I show in the book, is lots of people lose their jobs and are unemployed during those long periods of growth. You know, mm -hmm. as many people lost their job and were unemployed during the period in which I was running the book as lost it during the Great Recession, there's a lot of, lot of people who needed our help and we didn't have our attention turned towards them at all. Yeah. And so right now we do, we have, we have a lot of attention focused on unemployment. And so while the, our attention is focused there, I really want us to keep it focused there and to to, to use some of that energy to make a change. Yeah. So, so last question, last question, I promise. <laughs> like when I read books, I'm always like, who's the target audience? Who would benefit the most from this? And, and I, I could see a lot of people benefiting from it. Like, like if I was unemployed, I'd be like, okay, cool. I'm not crazy. Stuff is messed up. Right. I could see, you know, a, a, a stay at home mom or a, a mom who lost their job reading it and be like, oh, okay. Like the guilt gap and all this. I'm not crazy. Thank you, sir. But then also employers, if they read this and like, oh yeah, I'm kind of, you know, screwing people over or policymakers. So I could see so many people benefited from it, but as the person who wrote this book, who is the ideal reader? Who needs this book? Who needs to read it? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I finished with a bang. <laughs> I, I wrote it. I wrote it hoping that Americans would pick it up and read Tracy's story. And I don't know if, because I want people to see, I really, I mean, all of their stories, but Tracy's especially stuck with me. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted, um, and I think policymakers in particular, but I think just general folks, I wanted them to see what it was like and I wanted the unemployed to see what it was like for other people so yeah. I think it had I, <laughs> so that they would know they weren't alone in this <laughs> yeah and 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 so I think I have kind of a few audiences I do want it to reach policy policymakers but I also want it to reach regular Americans who who don't have a good sense of what um the unemployed's experience is like and who might pick it up and say, oh, this is something I needed to know. And then I want it to reach the unemployed who can pick it up and say, oh, this is me. I see myself here too. I've talked to a few people um, who, who've been unemployed. I've had a few interviews with people like yourself who've been unemployed and yeah. they said they could see themselves in it. And I, yeah. I found that be a good compliment so. yeah no no ab absolutely and like I, said, I think every everybody could benefit so everybody listening buy this book and then buy a <laughs> copy for someone else mail it to a politician but yeah books like yours help me feel less crazy and even though i've been kind of out of it for a while and been employed for a while i can look back and say like oh okay some of this 
some of this wasn't all you, Chris. Some of this wasn't you just being a loser who couldn't get a job, you know, and all that. But yeah, such an amazing book. So so tell everybody where where can they find you to keep up with your work, what you're doing, uh, updates about the book and all that kind of stuff. Where can they find you and where can they get a copy of the book? Okay, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Damaske. So that's S-A-R-A-H-D-A-M-A-S-K-E. And I'm also Sarah Damaske dot com <laughs> and uh the books on sale um at princeton um princeton university press's website also at amazon or barnes and noble or um any independent um bookstore that you like <laughs> yeah yeah and i actually uh listened to the audio ver- version of your book and it was fantastic so i so, really yeah. liked it i thought terry did a wonderful job <laughs> yeah yeah super good so yeah so so uh, thank, you thank you so much for your time and and i might i might bug you again to come back on so we could talk about more of this stuff because i didn't that even get through, fun, I didn't even get through half of it <laughs> it was uh, really good to talk to you thanks for having me on <laughs> yeah absolutely all right everybody there you have it there was my conversation with sarah how awesome is Sarah and the work she's doing and such just a wealth of knowledge. I love it. So please, please, please do me a favor. Check down in the description below. Go follow Sarah over on Twitter. Keep up to date with, you know, the research she's doing, other projects she's working on. But most importantly, grab a copy of her book. And like I always say, like you guys think I'm, I'm joking, but I'm dead serious. Grab two copies of her book, one for you, one for someone else. <laughs> like this week, uh, this is the third episode I've done talking about different social issues. Previously, we were talking about kind of the education system, but when it comes to these social issues, I think a huge, huge part of this is that we just we just don't know. We don't understand the nuances, the little details and different factors that come into play. So when I say get two copies of the book, one for you and one for someone else, it's it's. I really think these are important issues that more people to know need to know about. And, and hopefully, hopefully, I can figure out how to kind of, you know, sweet talk some of these publishers into hooking your boy up with some books so I could do some giveaways and stuff. So, uh, you know, aside from following Sarah and getting a copy of her book, all that stuff's linked down in the description. Follow me. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at The Rewired Soul because I'm telling you, something I am working on is trying to figure out a way to get copies of these books to start doing giveaways and it'll be on social media. So make sure you're following me. All right. But uh, yeah, aside from that, if you're new and you enjoyed this, make sure you're following or subscribe to the podcast. And if this is like your third or fourth episode and you're not following or subscribed, I don't know what you're doing. Just this way you get notifications and all that kind of stuff. And it also helps with the algorithms along with you rating it and reviewing it on Apple. And if you share the episode, like if you're sitting here and you listen to this, you're like, wow, I didn't know this. Or if you're like, wow, I wish more people knew this, share the episode. That also helps with the algorithms. This is a very, very new podcast and I'm very grateful with how much it's growing and taking off because we talk about such cool subjects and I love books and all that. But when you share and stuff, it reaches even more people. And, you know, we could build this awesome community of people who just love to learn and all that. All right. But uh, if you want to support uh, the podcast in any way and support my reading habit, down in the description, you, uh, you'll see links like you can become a patron. I self-published some books, mainly on mental health. They're available at TheRewiredSoul.com. 
and something that's helped me with my sobriety and dealing with rough patches, uh, you know, like unemployment, and all these other things is focusing on my mental health. And there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service I've personally used. It's great. You work with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home and it's affordable. All right. So check that out. There's an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. But huge, huge, huge thanks again to Sarah for taking some time to chat with me about her book, The Tolls of Uncertainty, and make sure you grab a copy and go follow her. All right. Anyways, that's all I got for this episode. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. And I have another episode for you tomorrow. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's going to be pretty sweet. So make sure you stay tuned. All right. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you next time.